Now, if you will, will you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 today uh, as we continue to make our way through Romans and particularly this great chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8. We're going to consider what the Word of God says here for us today as we continue to be encouraged as God's people. This is Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 12 down through verse 17. This is God's word. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word Would you now use it to instruct and change us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most common questions people ask of themselves today is, who am I? You may not walk around saying that to yourself about yourself, but you're thinking that. Who am I? It dominates our thinking. It's not a bad question to ask. Where we get in trouble is how we often answer it. We often will define ourselves by many categories today, whether it's our profession, a relationship, a race or ethnicity, a political affiliation, our economic status, physical appearance. On and on we can go. Are you a baby boomer or a millennial? Identity is something that we all put a lot of stock in, don't we? And while these categories are important descriptors of our lives, they ultimately do not define our life. As a Christian, you are first and foremost a child of God, adopted, sons and daughters of the King. We're going to see more of that in this passage. We just read, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You receive the Spirit of adoption as sons. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans chapter 8 states clearly who you are, who I am in Christ. So therefore we are not defined ultimately by our career choice or a certain relationship, or lack thereof. You're not defined by your sinful past, the opinions of others, your physical appearance, and on and on. You, friends, if you are in Christ, are adopted sons and daughters of God. Now Paul says that as fact in these verses. The question, though, that we often struggle with is this. 
But how do I know for sure that I am an adopted child of God? How do I know I belong to God? You see, churches, including our own, many times we focus a lot of our attention on getting people saved and helping people grow as Christians. And those are good things, right? We want to see people saved. We're going to do evangelism, and we want to see people growing as Christians. Discipleship. Both of those things the church must be part of. But I think that as we think about that, both of those things being necessary, there's one thing that is often neglected in the church. And it's this, helping people know they are a Christian. We help people become Christians. We want to help people grow as Christians. But one of the pieces of that growth is helping people know they are a Christian. The passage we have today is a divinely inspired text to help you do just that, to help you know you are a Christian. One of the goals that I think that I have for us today, praying to the Lord, and as I see the passage before us and understanding what the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write and why he was inspired to write it, the goal is simple. The goal today is for you and I to have confidence that we are children of God. One of my prayers and hopes for members of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, I don't want you, the last thing I want you as a member of this church to say is this, I hope that I'm a Christian. We want you to know you are a Christian. We want you to walk with godly assurance. We want you to be certain of your salvation. And if you're not a Christian, certainly we want to help you become one. We want to point you to the only one that can save you and make you a Christian and the only one that can transform you as a Christian and the only one that can assure you that you are a Christian. We don't want church full of people saying, I, I hope I'm going to heaven. We want, we want a church full of people confidence that we're marching to Zion. Confident that we are longing for that, that city of God, that, that great and glorious place that we will be with God forever and ever. We want you to know that. No matter what comes your way that seeks to blow you off course, we want you to know with confidence that you are a child of God. In this passage this morning, we, we're going to get several things, but I want you to look at verse 16. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's kind of a key verse here. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I just, I just wonder. Can you see that in your life right now? This morning, were you aware of the evidences of the Spirit in your life? Were you walking this week looking and, and seeing signs of God's Spirit bearing witness with your Spirit that you are a child of God? What, what would you point to in your life right now Right now, if I were to just say, stand up, point to evidences of the Spirit in your life that, that demonstrate that you're a child of God, what would you point to? 
for those of you that are like, good question, pastor. Romans 8, 12 through 17 will serve you today. As we think about the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, how does he do that? The text answers that question quite clearly. How does the Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God? Therefore, giving us assurance that we are. Well, Paul and the Spirit didn't ask me, but there are three things here. Three points, three evidences of the Spirit's assuring work in our lives that we're going to walk through. How does the Spirit bear witness that we are children of God? Three ways. Number one, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God by leading us to kill sin. The Spirit leads us to kill sin. Now back in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul answers as he anticipates this objection. He answers a misunderstanding about the gospel of grace. Grace, he argues from chapter 6 forward, is not a license to sin. It actually grants us the power to wage war against our sin. Look at verse 12 in chapter 8. So then, brothers, when you're walking through 7, 8, so then, four, four, four. I mean, these are all just connected verses, connected, connected, connected. So then, brothers, this new life in the Spirit's being fleshed out. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He says we owe the flesh nothing. If you're a Christian, you owe your flesh nothing. You're not in debt to your flesh. You're not a debtor. You're not in obligation. You're not under obligation to serve your flesh, Christians. And implied here is that we are debtors to live to the Spirit. Our new life in the Spirit changes us. We are no longer subject to the mastery of the flesh, even though we still do wrestle with the flesh, don't we? Romans 7. It doesn't own us. But as we continue to read, let's, let's see verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's not talking about physical death in this instant because everybody is going to physically die. Because he's making a distinction between those who die and those who live. Those who live according to the flesh will die eternally, perish. But if by the Spirit you put to death, kill, mortify the deeds of the body, you will live eternally. Paul's not teaching here that you can lose your salvation. Remember the context of Romans 8. No condemnation, no separation. There's security for the Christian. It begins in verse 1 of no condemnation. It ends in verse 39 of having no separation from God's love. He's simply pointing out to those, to, to the believers there in Rome, how you can tell those who are real and those who are fake. He's warning 
as he seeks to give assurance to Christians? On one hand, he's warning against having false assurance. You can't just continue to live like you want to and claim Christ. You can't go on making a practice of sin and be a Christian. In fact, if you look at other passages, forget Paul for a minute, let's go to John, 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, lifestyle, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, making a practice of sin. No one who keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let, not, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. not saying that those who have been born of God will cease from sinning, making a practice of, living a lifestyle of. So in essence, in verse 13 of chapter 8, Paul is issuing a warning here. He's saying, if you live according to the flesh, you're giving evidence that you're not in the Spirit. You're giving evidence of being someone who's not a Christian. Therefore, you're going to perish. You're going to die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Then notice the connection to verse 14. For all those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Led by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What it doesn't mean here in this context, he's not talking about the Spirit leading you to the right job. Or leading you, the Spirit leading you to marry the right person. Or the Spirit leading you to do this or to do that. Though the Spirit does work in those instances by giving us discernment and awareness. That's not what he's talking about here. I want you to follow the logic of Paul here. Inspired logic that Paul is going. How do I know I'm a Christian? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness, first of all, by leading me, verse 14, to do what? To put to death the deeds of the body, verse 13. Because those who are led in this way are children of God. So the leading of verse 14 is explaining the activity of verse 13. Those who are led by the Spirit of God to kill sin. Those who are the children of God. Paul's aware there are likely some within the Christian community that aren't truly converted. And he's clarifying the impact of the gospel in a person's life. I think here it's a great call for us to do some self-examination, isn't it? To see if the fruit of your life points more towards the flesh or the spirit. And if you're not taking a radical stance against sin, then you should take no confidence in your salvation. That's what he's saying. If you could just go on living with sin in your life and living as if the Lord is not even there and just doing what you want to do and continuing to follow in disobedience, you should take no confidence in being a Christian. 
It's a call to do self-examination. A Christian, listen, a Christian doesn't make it his or her practice to sin, but rather a Christian declares an all-out war against it. That's your life. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? Or do you hate other people's sin more than your sin? I think sometimes a quick look at Facebook reveals that, doesn't it? Some of our posts, we're happy to call other people out. But sometimes we get so caught up with other people's sin that we forget, hey, there's a log in our eye. We're so caught up with the speck in other people's eyes, we forget there's this glaring log right here in my own eye. That I have no intention to get rid of. Friends, I know it's easy to see the sin of others. But the proof of whether or not you're a Christian is not how good you are at seeing the speck in other people's eye. It's how good you are at getting the log out of your own. I know that there are certain things that we get caught up with and other people's issues that we get overwhelmed by. But the truth of the matter is, is that you better be your issue. You better be your issue. Are you fighting? Are you fighting husbands to have more of a kind and gentle attitude towards your wife? When you're tempted to lash out at your kids because they're too loud and you just want peace, are you fighting that frustration welling up in you? Or when you're tempted to cheat and lie your way out of a situation, Are you fighting for truth to prevail in your life? Friends, the true mark of a Christian, a true mark, not the, but a true mark of a Christian is to hate sin to the point of attacking it and killing it. An old Puritan John Owen wrote an entire book on Romans 8 verse 13. They were long-winded. You think I'm long-winded? Read some Puritans. You'll be blessed to have me as your pastor. So maybe your problem is you read too many of them and apply their. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, based on Romans 8.13. It's a great book. I actually read through it quickly over this past week just to, just to, again, get a sense of what he's explaining here. And, and one of the things he says in that book is, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What does this look like Practically. I want you to hear three things. We, I'm just going to limit it to three things because of time. We could say many more things about what this looks like practically. I'm going to give you three points referring to other passages of Scripture of what it looks like to kill, to mortify the deeds of the body. Here they are. Number one, make no provision to gratify the flesh. We get that in Romans 13, so you'll hear me preach that again at some point. In Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says there, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires so how do you walk in the spirit how do you kill sin make no provision to gratify your flesh see the flesh is still lurking around go back and remember Romans 7 
and it wants to be fed, and your job is to starve it. One preacher said once that every corruption has a voice. Friends, one of our responsibilities as a Christian is to fight to turn that volume down more and more and more and more. What does that look like? You know, I mean, just think about where, where, where do you struggle? What does that look like? What are you doing to make no provision to gratify your flesh? Are you more impacted when you're around this group of people sinfully and negatively than you are when you're around this group of people? What would making no provision to gratify your flesh mean? It probably would mean being, making wise choices in your friends. And people can tell, by the way, when you are around certain types of people versus others. They can tell. Being careful about the things that you watch or you listen to. We're not legalists here. But if you, over time, give yourself to watching certain things, and listening to certain things, that's going to take a toll on your health spiritually. Friends, if you struggle with drunkenness, you say no to going to happy hour with the team from work. If you struggle with pornography and don't have accountability software on your phone or your computers, you're making provision to gratify your flesh if you don't do that. It's not the ultimate answer. I'm just pointing out practical things you can do to make provision, and that's a huge issue. There's not a family in this room that that hasn't impacted in some way. I'm convinced of that. It's an epidemic. There's not a family in this room that pornography hasn't impacted in some way. Prove me wrong. I wish you could. It's a terrible thing that has infiltrated into our culture. Don't be so foolish to think that you can defeat that by yourself. And if you think that's not a big deal, it's only a big deal for others, you're naive. If you don't think your kids are seeing that stuff, you're naive. You have to, you have, to have a plan. Are you doing to make no provision to gratify your flesh? If you struggle with anger, are you getting help to reshape your expectations? I mean, we could just go on and on. There's making no provision to gratify the flesh. That's, that's one thing. Number two, spiritual amputation. Matthew 5, 29. Jesus says there, Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body, body be thrown into hell. Similar to making no provision to gratify the flesh, but more radical. Get rid of the things that cause you to stumble. This is just straight Bible, right? I mean, it's not hard. What, it, it's not hard. It's not hard to understand what, what this requires at times. It's just inconvenient, isn't it? For some of us, that will mean looking to get a new job. For some of us, that means we need to get rid of our smartphones. You say, I can't live in this world. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. It may mean for you to rid yourself of certain technology. It may mean that you move. It may mean that you get new friends. It may mean all kinds of things. Inconvenience and discomfort is worth it 
if it means you can find help in your fight against sin. Amputation and mortification. Just think about these biblical ideas. Two images. Mortification, uh, amputation. Two images that we get when it comes to fighting sin just shows you how serious God takes this work. We can go to other passages that talk about putting off certain sins and putting on righteousness. Friend, at the end of the day, the goal is not to, to get to the point where you're just not sinning. If that's your goal, if, I, if my goal of life is just so that I sin less, that's a bad, that's, that's a weak goal. If your goal is just to, I just need to quit doing that as often. And that's not a godly goal. A godly goal is I need to repent. I need to turn from this and put on righteousness. I hate crabgrass. I hate it. I'm not one of those that like idolize my yard. Maybe you, I'm not. You can come to my yard and see it. But I hate crabgrass. I hate that stuff with a passion. And I think many times when, when you're combating that crabgrass, I think about that like fighting sin. If you don't stay on top of it, it just takes over. I mean, I'm out there spraying stuff. I'm out there trying to get rid of it. But if, if all I did was just get rid of the crabgrass, all that would be would be these brown spots in my yard, and maybe my whole yard would be brown. One of the things you do to combat crabgrass is not only do you seek to kill it and uproot it from the roots up, you plant good grass seed in place of it, don't you? And so that over time, your yard is lush and green with healthy And that's what we're called to as Christians in a much more significant way than a yard. We want to replace unrighteousness with righteousness so that we flourish as Christians. Spiritual amputation. Number three, scripture memorization. Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11. How can a, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, this helps us see more of a positive, proactive approach, doesn't it? We're not just trying to rid, we're trying to immerse ourselves in what is true and what is good and what is holy. How do you keep your way pure? How do you fight against sin by keeping God's word, hiding it up, storing it up in our hearts that we might not sin against him and so that when we're tempted to sin, the Holy Spirit reminds us of something that is true and we are helped in that moment of temptation. Helps us see the connection, doesn't it? Verse 13, look what what Paul says. But if by the Spirit, key phrase, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. He doesn't say, but if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do you do that? By the Spirit. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, and you read through the whole armor of God, the only offensive weapon that you have there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Use God's Word in your life. 
This is an area, scripture memorization, an area I have neglected, and that is to my shame oftentimes in my own life. And oh, that God would kindle a yearning in our hearts for his word. That we would be a people that often are hiding the word of God in our hearts. Friends, are you waging this kind of war against sin in your life? This is not just activity for the kind of, this is not just something you do for the first six months of your new Christian life. This is, this is your life until you see Jesus. Are you waging war? Are you assaulting? Are you killing? Are you mortifying sin in your life? A mark of a Christian is that you will hate your sin and you'll do everything possible to seek its death. That's example number one of what it means to have assurance in your life. You're seeking to fight against sin in your life. The Holy Spirit leads you to do that. It's a good mark. It's good evidence. Number two, spirit, and these aren't as long. Not only does the spirit lead you to kill sin, the spirit leads you to long for God. Spirit leads you to long for God. It says in 14, for all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul continues here to describe why it is a believer must be killing sin, namely that we've, received, that we've not received the Spirit to go back to slavery, to fall back into fear, to have uncertainty. To, that we, we, the Lord didn't give us the Holy Spirit to just for nothing, for us to keep living in, in our fears. We weren't saved to remain in the slavery to sin. We've been, re, we've been adopted. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've been adopted as, as, as sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves. We're sons. And by the way, you might wonder, if you read through this passage, you might wonder why does he use the word sons and not daughters? A couple of reasons here. Let me just try to explain that, unpack that. In Paul's days, in Paul's day, only the sons would receive an inheritance. And so Paul's using terminology from his day and time that would have been common to that culture. It's also a phrase you see both in the Old and New Testament that would sometimes be a reference to the people of God. You see it in Deuteronomy 14, Isaiah 43, 6. You'll see it again in Romans 9. The sons of God, just a, another phrase that's used in the Bible to refer to the people of God. Now Paul brings further clarity to this in Galatians chapter 3. I want you to hear Galatians 3. Similar things that he's talking about in Galatians as he is Romans. Listen, listen to what he says. Galatians 3 verse 24. So then the law was our guarding until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Romans. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according 
to the promise. Brothers and sisters, no matter who you are, Jew or Greek, male or female, all of us, all of us are one in Christ. All of us are adopted children of God, equally. We are sons and daughters of the King. We've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When you think about your position, your status as a child of God, there are two things you could think of from that vantage point. One, there's a judicial reality. You've been justified by faith. You've been declared legally as an adopted child of God. There's a legal transaction that has taken place to make that a judicial matter. You have legally been declared a child, but there's also this experiential, emotional reality. See it here in verse 15, 16. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Cry, Abba, Father. Now you may read that and you think, well, Pastor, all, that we, all, we, do, all we have to do is say, Abba, Father, and we can be assured of our salvation. I just need to say, Abba, Father, and I'm good. Paul says, by whom we cry, Abba. Father. This term is a term of deep, sincere, earnest longing for God. Abba, an informal Arabic term for father that expresses tenderness and dependence. It's kind of like our term daddy. I wouldn't necessarily translate it that way, but it's similar. It, it, It expresses the same kind of concept. So when we call out Father, it is not just a formal intellectual cry. It is a deep, yearning, emotional dependence upon God as our Father. Jesus used this term in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, for his own Father there in the garden as he sweated drops of blood. It's a term of trust, a term of Longing, a term of deep emotional dependence. So here's proof number two that you would belong to Christ. Here's a, one of the ways that the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God is through how you long for God. Is there a deep yearning in your soul for God as your Father? Are you aware of how desperately dependent upon God you truly are and cry out to Him as your Father regularly? This cry, not just a statement, it's a cry, expression of dependence. This is the longing of a child. And this is the longing of a child of God, if you're an adopted child of the King. The Spirit not only will lead you to kill sin, the Spirit leads you to long for, to cry out for, to depend upon God. Is that true? Or do you just kind of see God as just kind of your buddy? You see God as just kind of your go-to person when things are bad, and I need a little help here. Or do you see him as your ever-present, faithful sustainer that you recognize your deep and abiding dependence upon? That 
So recognize that that is a symbol. That, that is a that is a uh, an example of how the Spirit bears witness with your spirit. What do your longings for God look like? Number three, the Spirit leads us to suffer well in Christ. Now, if you read through this, you see that we're called to kill sin. You see that true believers cry out for God. They see God as their Father. It's deep, lasting dependence, abiding dependence upon Him. And then he says, the Spirit he's, makes the statement we've been building upon here. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that just for a moment. Here's where we get this idea of what some scholars refer to as the already and not yet. Right? Already the kingdom of God has invaded this world, setting up sons and daughters of the king. Already that is a fact, that is, that is something that you can cling to and hope in, but yet there's coming a day when you will receive the inheritance in full. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. It's Hebrews that talks about Christ being our elder brother. Now this is not teaching that one day God's going to die. And we get to divide up his estate. It's not what that's saying. It means that we will receive all that God has promised us. What is that? Well, we don't have time to go into it necessarily, but just think, if you go to Romans 4.13, you can go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, and see the connection here. But one of the things that we will inherit is the world. I don't understand how all that's going to shape out. Romans 4.13 Paul talks about how Abraham inherits the world, and then Galatians 3.29, and if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, just like Abraham. We inherit the world. You think you're piddly half acres, something? Brothers and sisters, you're going to have the world. I don't know what all that means exactly, but that's part of our inheritance. Another is God himself. God is not dead. He's alive. Part of that inheritance will include being in his presence and seeing his glory for all of eternity. Another part of that inheritance is redeemed bodies. You'll hear more of that in Romans uh, 8 as we go into later weeks. So there's this inheritance that we're going to gain. Because we're children, there is an inheritance that is ours. But notice the catch, the condition which is part of my third point. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see that? You're like, Pastor, it would have been fine just for you to stop right there after that comma, after Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. I like that. Provided we suffer with him. We are heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here Paul says that the pathway to future glory includes suffering. You see that? The pathway to future glory includes suffering. Well, what kind of suffering is Paul referring to here? I'm going to grab verse 18 for that. 
think that's Jeremy's verse for three weeks from now. We've got a couple of weeks of Easter stuff coming up. I'm going to borrow Jeremy's verse. What kind of suffering, verse 17? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, sufferings of this present time, that suffering, He's referring to in verse 17, the sufferings of this present time. What kinds of sufferings are those? Well, you keep reading down through that text, and you see things like the creation waits with eager longing, that the creation, in verse 20, was subjected to futility, that the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. All suffering. All suffering that is the result of this broken mess we call the world today. That's the suffering he's talking about our aging our sickness our disease our bondage to decay cancer heart disease tooth decay broken bones suffering the tragedy of a loved lost loved one persecution war famine on and on we can go the sufferings of this present time point Paul is making here in verse 17 is that a Christian will go through suffering because you live in this present time. But you'll stay the course with Jesus. A Christian can be assured that the Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit when the doctor comes in and said, I don't have good news for you, and you say, Jesus is my hope and stay. Jesus is my rock and refuge. You don't shake your fist in God's face and say, how dare you, God. You cling to Christ in your weakest moments, knowing that He is your sustainer. Yes, you may struggle, yes, you may doubt, but, and you will groan, but all of that is in hope, in hope of future glory. This past weekend, our elders took a brief retreat. We went Friday and came back yesterday afternoon over to the eastern shore and spent some time together encouraging each other and talking about what the Lord's doing here and what we see coming ahead. And We took an afternoon Friday just for a hour or so and went to the new underground railroad museum that highlights Harriet Tubman she's grew up in that area as a slave and led that wonderful effort to rescue so many slaves underground railroad amazing woman who risked her life to bring many slaves to freedom she suffered as a slave and yet later suffered a lot of danger to rescue many other slaves This is what she said one time when someone was talking to her. She says, I always told God, I'm going to hold steady on you, and you've got to see me through. That's verse 17. I'm going to hold steady on you, and you've got to see me through. That's the cry of a Christian. Enduring the present sufferings of this day, clinging to Christ, holding steady, to the solid rock. And the question will be, the question that you need to consider is not, will you suffer? The question is, how will you suffer? The Christian suffers with Christ.
as his hope, of her hope. You're going to hear more about that in the coming weeks. Brothers and sisters, you're not promised an easy, comfortable, pain-free life. Sin has really messed things over in this world. And as long as we live here, we will endure its impact. But for the Christian, that means clinging to Christ every step of the way. As a believer, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Verse 9, go backwards. You're children of God. You're adopted children of God. You are heirs of God. That is your identity. Who are you? Child of the King. That's who you are, Christians. We're here today, you're not a believer. God holds that, that, that gift out to you to receive in faith. As a sinner, that you would see that Christ is your only hope and that He came to rescue people just like you. That if you would turn from your sin and trust in Him, believe in Him and all that He's done for you, you will be part of the kingdom as well. You will be adopted into the family. Brothers and sisters, that's who you are. Don't let anyone rob you of that truth. And how do you know that's true? How do you know you're adopted? Well, the Spirit bears witness. He gives evidence that you are. And that evidence is seen in how you attack sin. That evidence is seen in how you long for God. And that, is, that evidence is seen in how you suffer. Spirit's bearing witness. Friend, is the Spirit bearing witness in your life? in these ways? If so, take comfort in your great salvation and how good and glorious God is. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this wonderful, comforting assurance. Father, it it's comforting to, to hear these things and to see these things, especially when they're at work in our lives, to see these things going on in us, to, to see the ongoing work of the Spirit to help us battle against the flesh and against sin, the longings welling up in our hearts after God, and even in our sufferings, Lord, how you lead us in that. Father, would you continue to encourage us in these ways? Would you continue to bear witness with our spirit that we are your children? My prayer, Father, is for Christians today that you would continue increasingly do these things. And Lord, if they're struggling with assurance, that you would help them see. To help them see what you're doing. Father, it may be that some, they're not comforted at all by this message. And they're greatly concerned because they don't see sin being attacked. They don't see deep longings for you. They don't see suffering through the lens of a Christian. They, they, they see all of these things as not as we've seen described here in the text. And so, Lord, if there are people here today that they're not comforted, Father, would you help clarify where they stand with you in their own hearts today? And if they're not a, a believer, Lord, would you draw them to yourself and give them eyes to see their only hope in Christ? Father, would you help us to leave here today not hoping that we're, we're yours? Would you help us to leave here today knowing that we are and living in joy, living in joy all the days that you give us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.